Last time we talked about the chiropractic conundrum, and we talked about the problem of making a decision and whether or not that decision is going to be good or bad. But this time I want to follow up on that because what we're going to talk about today is very much related, but it's a part of the problem that we don't usually talk about. And that's the problem of knowing when to stop and knowing when not to proceed. And those aren't quite the same thing. So I'm going to start by talking about knowing when not to proceed. So this would be a situation where you think you've found a subluxation, uh, you've done all of your stuff, you're convinced it's a subluxation, and then typically what happens is you put your hands on it, you set up, and this is the experience that somebody with experience would have, is they would feel the body response and they would say to themselves, oh, the body doesn't want me to do this yet. And so that might be the first place you start to sense this. But as you develop more skill, you'll actually be able to start picking it out even on the x-ray, where you look at an x-ray and just based on the biomechanics, you say to yourself, that is a problem, it's going to need to be fixed, but I can't do it yet. And that was a concept for me as a student, as a young doctor. Nobody had ever taught me the concept of I can't do it yet. It was, it was a little more black and white than that, I think. It was a little more um, either you do it or you don't do it. It's either right or it's wrong. There was no middle concept of you're going to have to do it. It is a problem, but you can't do it yet. And so when you get your hands on a segment like that, um, I would say it's often, it's often an upper cervical. When you think you've found something that's maybe causing headaches or something like that, um, C2 is notorious for lacking mobility when it's not the problem. Uh, and then even sometimes when it is the problem, sometimes when the C2 does need to be adjusted, on initial feel, you realize that the body is so protective, you can't do it yet. And so that's a very difficult thing to try to explain. And I think that's probably why we don't talk about it. Because I know from talking with some older doctors, some fellows, they would, they would say the same thing that I would probably say. If you ask, well, how do you know? They would say, you just know. And that's not very helpful if you're somebody who doesn't just know. It's like, well, how do I get from where I am to just knowing? And so um, a lot of times it's by making mistakes, but that's probably not the best way to learn, although it is a way to learn. Uh, the best way is to have a kind of a guide for what you're feeling for. And I, I've been thinking about this a lot, trying to think, well, well, what is it? What is it about a segment that you line up and go, nope, that's not going to work? Or, um, I mean, there's the, there's the aspect of, I can't do it like that. I need to change my line of drive. I need to do something else and I can make it work. But there's, an as there's another aspect, which is, I shouldn't do this. Like that gut feeling of, we can't do this yet. If I do this, it's not that I can't move the bone. I probably can. And if I move that bone, the patient and I are both going to regret it because it's not going to stand up. And I think that that's kind of a higher level of Gonstead work that doesn't often get talked about when we're doing the basics. Uh, I've thought about this quite a bit too, that we do a lot of basic classes where we're teaching adjusting, basic adjusting. We're teaching basic concepts, listings. We do a lot of basic work. And so if you think about it like in a university program, we've got a lot of 101 classes. But what does 201 look like? What does 301 look like? What does 401 look like? And a lot of times as we go along, everybody just kind of does their own thing, draws their own conclusions, and kind of moves in their own way. And this is something that was def definitely prevalent to me that I saw when I was in school and trying to figure things out, recognize that there were a lot of people who did Gonstead 
And when I say they did Gonstead, I mean they palpated, they scoped, they x-rayed, and they adjusted P to A. But outside of those four things, I don't know that I could tell you they did too many things that were similar to each other. And it was that diversity within the common ground that often caused confusion for students. Because, uh, of course, when you're a student, you're talking mostly to other students that you're with every day. And everybody's having the same struggle and everybody's trying to figure things out and they're trying to figure out where to go. And there is, um, there is some variance within the way people do things. And that doesn't mean anything is right or wrong. I think as long as you're doing basically those four things I just said, then you're doing something right. But then you go from I'm doing it right to how can I do it the best? And that was something that I, my brain didn't go there until I was probably somewhere between year three and year five of practice that I felt confident that if a patient came in, I can find a subluxation, I can adjust them and I can get them better. But then I started asking myself, but am I really doing it the best way possible? Could I do it a better way? Uh, and what would that look like? And then that's where you get kind of into this chiropractic conundrum. I started asking myself, well, just because I could change it doesn't necessarily mean that I should change it. And if I do change it, how much thought am I really putting behind what I'm going to change? And, and so for me to change something, I had to have a really strong rationale as to why I thought that was going to make things better before I actually went there and made that change. Otherwise, I was content to stick to what I had because um, most athletes know this. If you've got something that's working well for you, you don't go and mess it up. If if you're a baseball player and your swing's working pretty well, you're not going to risk screwing that up just to try to get a little bit better. Um, if you're shooting free throws and your free throw percentage is really good, you don't want to start messing with how you take your shot in the hopes of getting a little bit better when what you're doing is pretty good. And yet, if you've read any of Jim Collins' books, which I highly recommend, um, he's got a book, Good to Great, and he's got Built to Last. He's got a number of other books too, but those are the two foundational books. One of the things you find is that good is the enemy of great. And so I knew that. And so I'm looking at what I'm doing. I'm thinking, well, it's good. And at the same time thinking, yes, but the fact that it's good makes it the enemy of great. And so do I want to be great or am I content to just be good? And I think that that's a decision everybody has to make for themselves. Some people are content with being good and that probably is good enough. Uh, you, it, you don't have to be great. Uh, you can Being good in the Gonstead world makes you better than 90% of chiropractors out there. So there's nothing wrong with choosing to be good. But when you're of that mentality, you're like, where you just want to be better and you want to make the, you just that way. You have to be very careful with how you mess with things and how you change them. And the patient's no different. That when you're working with a patient and the patient is doing good, but you want the patient to do great, you run the risk of taking them from good to worse in the effort to make them great. But at the same time, they can't be great unless you make the change, knowing that good is the enemy of great. And this is why last time I called it a chiropractic conundrum, because it is a conundrum. And in the end, I'm not even sure that there is a right answer. It's just we have to think about the process and understand the choice we're making, because you're making a choice, but that choice that choice needs to be made consciously. It needs to be made knowing that, um, I would even say from patient to patient, there are patients where I would say to myself, that's good enough. And then there are other patients where I'm like, no, we need to do more. And so it's not that there's even just one right answer, even, even just for me. 
So even just for you, you can't just say that, well, I've chosen to just be good or I've chosen I want to be great. In some cases, good's not good enough and you need to be great. In other cases, the constant pursuit of great will cause you to make problems when you should have been content with just being good. Uh, I found it rather interesting one day um, when my wife was working on doing dentistry, working on a kid, and she was fine-tuning something, and finally she said out loud, um, better is the enemy of good. And I thought, oh, that's the opposite philosophy. <laughs> that's the totally opposite philosophy. Because she recognized it as, an, as a dentist, when you're cutting away, that effort to make it better will suddenly cut away a little too much, and now it's worse, and you can never put back. So in dentistry, they see it as that constant need to make it better can eventually become the enemy of what is actually good. And I think that that's interesting because I think both of those concepts are true. And so we think about that. Doing more can be your demise and doing less can be your demise. And so let me get back a little bit on track as far as how do you know when you should not proceed? Well, in thinking about that, I think the answer has to be that the patient's body will tell you. And I think that's what most other people would say too, is that when you shouldn't proceed, the patient's body will tell you. So you have to be very sensitive to what the patient's body is telling you. And that is an art form that uh, I see, I don't want to say it being lost, but I see it not being pushed to the extent that maybe it should. Uh, even the recognition that at different year points in our career, we have different skill sets, different abilities. And that there's a point probably, I would say probably between year five and 10, when we, by five, year five and 10, if you're not able to really adjust people and you're not able to get people well, you probably don't have much of a practice to speak of. So there's no doubt you're doing good enough. But then that's where the push starts to really become connected to the patient, to really want to reach that point where you're doing something, something more, where you're really in connection with them. Because one of the thoughts I had at one point when I, was, when I was first starting out is I said to myself, I can get an adjustment, but that doesn't mean it's comfortable for the patient. But how much better adjustment would I get if it was comfortable for the patient? So I went into this phase where I was really, really focused on how can I make the most comfortable adjustment possible? And what I found is that as I focused on making the patient comfortable, making the adjustment the best it could be, I really started to get better results. And by better results, I don't mean louder cavitation or even a deeper adjustment. I don't even mean that. I mean the patients just got better and they got better faster because I wasn't putting their body into a defensive mode where it was wanting to guard. And so I became less concerned actually with a perfect line of drive, that had become, line of drive had kind of become automatic at that point. Um, and so I had that part figured out, but the comfort factor, by not getting their body riled up where it wanted to defend me off, where it was thinking that it needed to protect against what I was doing, that turned into quicker results. Patients getting better in, I would say, half the time, um, at least a, at least, um, a third faster. But a lot of times, half, twice as fast. So cutting it the time in half. And the more I saw that, the more I thought, okay, so there's a key here 
to really making as comfortable adjustment as I can. And so I think if, if you're somebody who's made it past that first initial stage, that first stage is just trying to get stuff to move. But once you get past that stage where you're starting to feel like you can move things, the next phase is how can I move things in the most comfortable way possible? And I think that when you find what that zone is, not only will you see improvement in the results, but you'll also see improvement in your adjusting ability because it is way easier to adjust somebody who's relaxed and receptive versus somebody who's tense and guarding. And that tense guarding, the idea of you should not proceed, it shows up in the form of tense guarding. But I'm cautious to say that because not every form of tense guarding is a sign that you shouldn't proceed. There is a tense guarding where the body is very protective of it because it's an injured joint and because you need to do it. But the thing is, if it's tense and guarding because the body's being protective, you can hunt around and you can find a line of drive that when you apply a little bit of pressure in the right line of drive, you'll feel that tense guarding melt away. Even if it's only for a split second, even if it's for a moment, you'll get that brief glimpse of if I put it right here, the body will accept it. And then you know all I need to do is be incredibly precise and have great timing and I can get it in there. But when you've got a patient that you're lining up on and as you hunt around, no no line of drive relaxes it. It becomes almost more tense. And the more you hunt, the worse it gets. And you can't get the body to back down. That's my best verbal description of the sign that you should not proceed. Because I think as a general rule for myself, I hunt for that place where it'll let me go. And if the body says, I'm not letting you do this in any position, I can't find that window, then that tells me that I either shouldn't do this adjustment or I shouldn't do it in this way. So let's say it's a cervical. Let's say, I'll just pick a number at random, let's say it's a C3. And I line up on a C3 and I'm trying to adjust it and I cannot find that window and the body's fighting me off and it's getting worse. What I might do is lay them prone and see how they feel as I get on that. But if I get on it in a prone position where it's not holding their head up and there's no weight bearing and that thing's still trying to fight me off, then I start thinking, this is very protective of this. I might not want to do this yet. Because as we always say, you can, you can always give more adjustment. You can never take any away. Uh, in dentistry, it's the opposite. You can always cut more out. You can, it's hard, much harder to put stuff back, especially real bone. So you see how that works that way. It's a, it's a caveat of we, we want to be aware of what we can do more of and what we can't do more of. And so in our world... We can always give another adjustment. We can always set it a little bit deeper. We can always pick a different line. We can always do more. We can't do less. Once we've done something and the body has a response to it, we can't take that away. We can try to mitigate the effects of it, but we can't take it away. And that's why the caution and the attention and focus has to go on the aspect of how, if, when in doubt, don't. And so for me, when the body's fighting back and it's saying, nope, that's not going to work, that gives me doubt. And when it gives me doubt, then I don't. Uh, and that's because I know that I can always do it later. And when I say later, I might even mean later that day, possibly. It doesn't have to be way later, but I can always do it later. And sometimes, especially when you've got an upper thoracic and an upper cervical at the same time, and they're both bad, a car accident's a great example. When you get a wicked whiplash at a high-speed accident, um, which I will say in my time practicing, I, I see more high-speed accidents than I did when I started. Um, 
basically every car now can go super fast. And so, and people I think are driving crazier. And so they, you get more high speed accidents, high speed accident. There's so much energy going through the body. You're likely to get something in the cervicals and something in the upper thoracic as the body's guarding that it may, it may biomechanically need you to do one first, give that a chance to heal and then go to the next one. And so you don't want to be too greedy and try to do both. Um, sometimes you can. I'm not saying there's no absolute rule here, but it's to avoid that situation where you think, I'm going to help this patient out. I'm going to do as much for them as I can because that's the way we tell ourselves. I'm going to do as much as I can to help this patient. And then you do this thing and it ends up being too much and the patient goes way backwards. And in hindsight, you realize every sign was there telling you, I shouldn't have proceeded, but I did anyway. And so my advice is simply to be really really cognizant of what your hands and fingers are feeling and feel how the feel the body's response feel whether it's accepting or not and when in doubt don't do it hey i just want to take a brief moment to thank you for listening to this podcast as we're wrapping up another year we're planning already to do some amazing things next year uh, change some formats do some new things and try to get new stuff out there. And so, again, I just want to thank you for listening to the podcast. If you haven't reviewed us, please do that. Give us reviews. Uh, help us get pushed to the top so we can get more people listening. And uh, as we get closer to the end of the year, we'll be doing our wrap-up show. And I'll share with you some of the stats about what we've been doing with, with this podcast and how it's been spreading around the world. And we've got Gonstead people all over the world listening to this thing. So thank you so much for your support. And uh, we'll look forward to another great year with you. So now let's talk for just a minute about the process of knowing when to stop. This is different from knowing when not to proceed, but when to stop. I remember uh, it was, it would have been one of the early seminars I went to. Um, you know, when you first start going to seminars, especially as a student, you kind of feel like you're drinking from a, from a fire hose and every single thing that you hear is some kind of massive revelation to you and so it can be overwhelming and yet there's there are a few things that stick out in my mind that after all these years I still remember and one of them had to do with Dr. Alex telling us a story about how how we should all know when to stop because um, as he put it the biggest mistake you can make is to give the patient one for the road um, and we'll come back to that concept because I think that that's a concept that's easy to get stuck into he told the story of a lady who came to see Dr. Gonstead and after a number of adjustments, Dr. Gonstead had her all fixed up and working well, sent her back home. She gets a call from her local chiropractor. Uh, he wanted to know why she's not coming in, you know, for her regular visits. So out of guilt, she goes in to see him. He gives her one adjustment and all the symptoms that Dr. Gonstead had gotten rid of, they all came rushing back. So she's got to take a trip back up to Mount Horeb to have Dr. Gonstead fix her a second time. Um, and he said that it was much harder for him to fix her the second time and that the results still weren't quite as good as the first time. And this story served as a warning to us that one of the biggest mistakes you can make as a chiropractor is to adjust the patient one too many times. And so I think maybe in my own personal bias, that was ground into my brain from an early beginning is one of the biggest mistakes I could make is to do too much. And I think the concept of doing too much is one that's quickly getting lost on chiropractors today. I don't think in most schools are even telling students about the possibility 
of adjusting too much. I know for many of us who have been in practice, as much as we're warned against it, uh, many of us would admit that we've had at least one patient that we adjusted too many times and we lost the value. There were certain cases in particular that we would get, um, that we were told to be particularly, particularly mindful. Things like um, basically anything neurological, but certain cases like say a tic de la rue, uh, trigeminal neuralgia, or um, a really great one would be a bedwetting case. And since there are a lot of bedwetting cases out there, I know a lot of chiropractors see bedwetting cases, understanding the importance of not over adjusting that patient is absolutely essential. Because if you've got a bedwetting case and you fix that kid up, that could be the greatest thing in their life. And you give them one too many and you ruin that, that could be the worst day of their life because you will probably find, like the story I heard about Gonstead, you will probably find that the next time you try to fix that thing again, it's not so easy and you may not even be able to get it. So the, the entire concept of knowing when to stop was huge. And so one of the things that I would use, um, start, I started doing it early on, is that when I had cases that involved neurology that weren't strictly biomechanics, I mean, there's a lot of gray area in between the two, but things that I would just feel like the main complaint that they were, that the patient was complaining about was a neurological issue, not a biomechanics issue. With those, I would take special notes uh, on my scope reading. And one of the things I would look for, and again, this was because this is what Dr. Alex told us, is you watch for the scope to switch sides. So I wasn't so worried about the size of the reading or certain things like that, but I would know with a certain patient, like say it's a bedwetting case and we'll say you've got the stereotypical S2 and every time you get down there, it deflects to the right. Well, if you adjust that kid and they get better and then the next time you scope them, the needle deflects to the left and they tell you, I'm having no bedwetting and you've got a needle deflecting to the left now, you absolutely do not want to touch that patient. That is a telltale sign of let this kid go. You can always give more. Remember, we keep talking about this. You can always give more. You can't take away. Um, let that kid go and see what happens. And for the most part, if those symptoms aren't coming back, you want to leave it alone. And so when I think about that, I think about the, I, I don't know if this is the right word, but I'm going to use it anyway, the fragility of the nervous system, especially the fragility of a nervous system that's been in trouble and has been having trouble. When they get like that, it's it's not so resilient. And so um, if you remember, whenever we talk with Dan Lyons, he's always talking about adaptability. It's all about adaptability. But a nervous system that's been at the limits of what it can handle uh, and it's been and it's had these horrible symptoms going on, that's not very adaptable yet. It can get there. But that one extra adjustment at that phase might be the thing that's too much that sends it over the edge. And so I think we need to learn a certain amount of respect for the nervous system. And I know that there's many who their mindset is, well, I'm running a business and I need repeat customers and I need all this kind of stuff. And that's all good and well, of course you do. But um, there are certain patients that to me are outside any system like that. Uh, and certainly you can still check that patient. You can look at other things, but the problem is, and this was always what I was told and how Godstead felt about it is it takes a lot of self-discipline to have that patient sitting in front of you and not adjust them. So when you know that you shouldn't adjust them, if you also are self-aware enough to know that you don't have a lot of self-discipline, then you probably shouldn't put yourself in the position where the patient's sitting in front of you. 
even if that's just, well, let's just check it. Let's just see how it's going. If they're in front of you, you're going to, you're going to require a tremendous amount of self-discipline to not do something with that patient. And so if you've got great self-discipline, no problem. You can probably handle that. Uh, for me, it's, it's not just fear of what I've been told. It's also fear of what I've experienced because in spite of all the warnings that I received, I have had a few patients that I've adjusted one too many times, uh, and never on purpose, always thinking, well, maybe we, maybe it needs a little more, maybe it needs a little more. And you never know until hindsight. And then after you've done it, you look back and you go, man, that was it. All the signs were there. I should have listened to them. I shouldn't have done more. And you do a little too much and you and the patient live to regret it. And so this is a topic that uh, I don't hear it discussed as much as maybe it was in the past. And maybe it wasn't discussed enough in the past, but it's something that when you get in practice, if you've never heard it talked about and then it suddenly happens to you, you either don't know what just happened or you are kind of baffled that why didn't nobody ever talk about this before. So that's why I'm talking about it now. It's very, very important to make sure that you're not over adjusting your patient and doing too much. And it is, it's sad to me that we have a lot of different systems and marketing and all these other kind of things. And the one thing that they don't consider, they refuse to consider is the idea that you can over adjust a patient. And that doesn't mean that there's a certain limit. And when you hit this number, that's when you should stop on everybody. There's no absolutes. But one of the things that I've done that I think has made it so that I've gotten really good results with things like bedwetting. If you ask me, what's the secret of your success with bedwetting? My very first answer would be not adjusting them too much. That is the secret of success. Because if you can adjust an S2, you can probably get it. If you can find a subluxation, you can probably get it. There are things like that. They're not that complicated. But where most people are going to mess up that case is not on the finding the subluxation and not on the adjustment. They're going to mess it up by adjusting it too much. And so think about that with anything neurological. When I've had issues with people who are having clear vagus nerve issues, again, anytime a nerve pops up, I'm thinking, whoa, Nelly, let's go slow and let's just wait and watch. And so my, my go-to thought is when in doubt, wait. And I tell myself that. I tell myself that in my head. When in doubt, wait. And there's times when they're talking, and man, oh, I'm so much better. You think one more adjustment would help me? And you really desperately want to say yes. And then I tell myself, when in doubt, wait. And I go, you know what? Let's just wait a second. Maybe let's give it another day. Let's maybe give it two more days. Let's give it the weekend. Let's just see how it's doing. If it gets dramatically worse, let me know. We'll fix it. But I don't think it will. And it almost never does. We just wait. And then after that period of time, either it's become clear that we need to do just a little bit of something, but in most cases, it never comes true. When they think a little more will help, after a few days, they're doing so good, they almost forgot they had a problem. And so when in doubt, wait is a very good policy for dealing with that kind of an issue. So hopefully that gives you some insight into knowing how to, how to know when not to proceed and how to know when it's time to stop. Those are two very important things for chiropractors to learn about. And having taught a chiropractic curriculum in a chiropractic school, I know that we don't talk about them much, not nearly as much as we should, because we tell everybody how to get going and we don't really tell them how and when to stop. So those are just a few tips, but this is a topic I definitely want to come back to some more and, and I'll talk with other people about it as well, because this is, um, this is something that really has to get firmly rooted. Otherwise, Otherwise, you end up messing up your own work. You take two steps forward and one step back, or even worse, you take one step forward and two steps back. 
And there's no reason to be messing up our own work when all we really need is a little bit of self-discipline and the ability to tell ourselves no. So I hope that helps you today. Thank you.